I just want to say a big shout out to all those who uh, contribute in one way or another in making our gatherings happen. Because uh, each, each piece of what happens when we gather is very important. So a big thank you to everybody who actually takes the time and goes and serves. You know, from, yeah, from, from setup team to the parking lot to the, the welcome, the coffee, uh, the, the sound crew, the video crew, the, the music, it's all together. And thank you, all of you, for uh, putting it aside and making it a priority. We really can't do what we do on a Sunday without you. So thank you. Yes, let's give my hand for everybody. And never mind the people working with our kids. Now, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11, and at the beginning of this chapter, there's this character called John the Baptist, and he's, he's, he's the out-there cousin of Jesus, and he's preaching hardcore, a hardcore message to the people to repent, to change their ways, and he's telling them that there's a Savior that is on his way. And now, Jesus' early period of popularity, when we come now into Matthew here, starts to wane. Um, Opposition is now growing against Jesus, and not only in the amount, but also the intensity. And as Jesus will make very clear in the next chapter when we get there, the only possible uh, alternative with Jesus is either you accept him or you reject him. Um, A person is either uh, for Christ or against him. And he makes that very clear. Now, consequently, Jesus' teachings uh, become more and more specifically directed either to those who accepted or those who rejected him. Now, Jordan McClellan actually looked at the first uh, beginning of, the, of this chapter back on October 8th. I want to encourage you to go back and to listen uh, to it on the podcast so that you can put it all together. But in a nutshell, in this chapter uh, begins with John the Baptist, who is a great religious leader, who at one time was very supportive of Jesus, and he now finds himself in jail. He's filled with doubts. He's like trying to put it all together, and he can't. And so uh, things didn't appear to be going according to plan. Now, John the Baptist might be feeling a little scared, even offended by Jesus, so he sends out a message to Jesus. And he's asking him, he says, listen, are you really the one? Are you this Messiah that, I'm, you know, that I've been preaching about and talking about? Or should we be looking for somebody else? And the rest of this chapter in chapter 11 now becomes Jesus' response to John's questioning and doubts. And yet at the very same time, what is being asked here in this passage is exactly what the average person would ask Jesus if he showed up on the scene. The average person, that's you and me would look at Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, honestly, I find many of your teachings very offensive. I find some of your claims very offensive. You know, how do I know you are who you say you are? And is there any other, or is there some other way to God, or do I have to go through you, as you've been talking about? So the walls are up. So in this passage, we see that Jesus is addressing why so many people don't believe in him as a Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Now, there's a lot written in the chapter that I just don't have time to unpack, but we need to see what Jesus is getting at. So let's pick it up at verse 16, and this is what it says. It says, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance, and so we sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. To which everybody looks at that passage of Scripture and goes, what is he saying? 
And sometimes things just seem to get weird when we first read them in the Bible. Like, what is Jesus talking about? You know, Jesus, in essence, is asking people, you know, asking why do people look at him and don't understand who he is? Why do so many disbelieve or reject him? And the obvious answer to that question really is unbelief. But now unbelief is different from simply a lack of faith. Unbelief is the presence of something else that now becomes our focus. Let me put it this way. There is something within our hearts, all of us, that resists or fears or hates the message of Jesus. There's something within all our hearts that resists, fears, or hates the message of Jesus. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus didn't tell people to believe in him because he said so. Right, parents? That's our answer. Don't do this. Why? Because I said so. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't pull that lame answer. He overwhelmed them with the evidence. But what he is saying is that in spite of all the evidence and all the things that I have shown you, there are still people who refuse to believe in him. And what we'll soon see is that Jesus shows us that this unbelief is not about the lack of evidence, the lack of miracles. Unbelief actually prevails over evidence. So today is philosophical day, if you haven't put it together. So put your philosophy hats on. That unbelief is a presence in the place of our hearts then and now that makes us recoil to the message of Jesus. When it comes to unbelief, it's actually a heart issue. Now, there's something in all of our hearts that resists the message of God. It doesn't matter how many miracles or how many hoops Jesus had to jump through to try to convince people to believe in him, but many simply did not. It didn't matter. There's a great and troubling verse at the end of Matthew, and it's right after Jesus rode from the dead. He appeared to many people, and Jesus, before he gives what is known as the Great Commission, stands before these people, the 11 disciples, and he says they went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It didn't matter what he did, some doubted. This verse would not exist if it weren't true. The, the author, Matthew, is writing, look at it, it didn't matter all the stuff that even when he rose from the dead, some still doubted. And the people who remembered this moment that day remembered that in spite of the fact that they were there, they saw Jesus die, they saw him rise again uh, from the dead, that the people who were right there who were a witness still doubted. And yet you and I would say, well, if we were there, there would be no doubt. Really? It's a hard issue. You know, we tend to think of a, uh, to ourselves the reasons we don't have more faith is only if you know, somebody would stand in front of me and, and do a miracle, then I would believe. I just need to see a miracle happen, then I would believe. And, you know, Jesus really, when you look in the scripture, says, listen, I've already done that numerous times over and over again. And in many cases, people who witnessed those miracles and more still didn't believe. So why would it be any different than any of us today? That becomes a question. And there's this powerful resistance to the message of God in our hearts. And until we realize that we will never find him on our own, there is something in the deepest recesses of our heart that keeps people from seeing who Jesus really is. And so what Jesus does is he goes and he takes this metaphor of a child and begins to talk about childishness. 
And Jesus begins to paint a picture with all of his hearers that we would understand. We would all relate to God in a way of a little child having a snit. And so Jesus tells us, you know, we are like little kids having a snit, having a tantrum, having a a hissy fit, however you want to do it. Because let me explain it this way. In ancient times, there were two major celebrations that would take place in the community, which most people would be involved in. There was weddings and there was funerals. That was the guarantee that you were always going to be involved in one of those. And weddings lasted for a week. And what did you do at weddings? You danced your brains out. You danced and you feast. And it was a great time. Funeral, on the other hand, were times that there was actually, with the mourning, there was a lot of singing. So singing was a, na- a natural aspect. The dirge was the natural aspect of the funeral. So there would be a lot of singing. So you had music going on at both. Now, if you think about it, most kids, most little kids, cannot distinguish, really, between a wedding and a funeral. They, they, they don't understand the concept, right? Because, really, they don't tell the difference. They can play, they can cry, they can fight, they can laugh at both weddings and funerals, and they really don't care or they really don't understand. They just know that people are getting together, but it's a time for play and it's all about me. So what Jesus is saying here is when he talks about the music, when he talks about children, he says, let's, let's play wedding. And, and some kids get it. They want to play with Jesus. But there's other kids who say, no, no, we don't like this game. And then the self-proclaimed leader, because there's always one with kids, right? There's always the boss, says, okay, well, let's play the other game. Let's play funeral. And the rest of the kids respond, no, that's a dumb game. We don't want to play that either. And so this is the analogy that Jesus is creating. As most parents have seen something like this acted out with our kids, right? Your kid can't wait for an event. When it finally happens, the kid freaks out. I don't want a party. I don't want a cake. I don't want presents. And then they're trying to reason with the child. is like giving a cat a bath, and you just can't do that. It doesn't work, right? Watch this video. Can we sing happy birthday to you? Yeah. We can? Yes. All right, let's go. You're going to sing with us? Okay. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Say to you. Say to me. Let's sing. Let's sing You Are My Sunshine. Do you want to sing? Maybe she wants to sing it all by herself. Do you want to sing it by yourself? Yeah. Okay. Go Go on. Two, three, go. Do you want us to sing? You don't want us to sing Happy Birthday? You are my sunshine. Blow out the candles. Why don't we sing happy birthday? Can we sing happy birthday to you? Leah, Leah, you're full of tension. Okay, go on. One, two, three.
birthday to you? No. Want to sing? You can sing. Go on. We'll wait for you. Hold on, baby. Wow. kid's lucky to be alive. <laughs> what the kid is saying is it's not going my way. It doesn't matter what the parents there. Therefore, I'm going to convince myself that I just don't want it. And the kids are really, what they're doing is they're lying to themselves. And what Jesus is getting at here is the problem that what we have is not with the music of the dirge or the music of the dance, but what the real problem is, is that we're not the leader, that we're not in charge. We don't like your tunes, Jesus. The reason isn't the reason we give. We don't like your tunes, Jesus. I don't like the music. But the real reason behind the reason is the fact that I want to be in charge. And so Jesus is using a metaphor to address the power issues in our hearts. That's what this little passage is about. So what if Jesus says about himself is true his claims, etc., then our nature of unbelief is that you and I will try to convince ourselves that there is something wrong with Christianity. But the issue is not really the evidence presented to us. The issue really comes down to the power struggle that's going on deep inside of our hearts because all we all want to be in control of the message. And when we look at Jesus' message, his message is what? Surrender. And we're stuck. Because if Jesus' message is true, then when you and I, we lose all power. We lose all authority. We lose all control over our lives. We lose our right to self-determination. And the problem is that it's Jesus' tune and not our tune. And so Jesus really is saying that nobody is neutral. There's no such thing as neutrality. You and I, we all interpret data in light of what we think is our ultimate authority. This is how we look at life. It's our worldview. Let me explain it this way. Let's say you have a crazy friend. He's a friend who insists that they're dead. Now, just work with me. We all have, like, weird friends. This is that weird friend. All right? Now, you're concerned about your weird friend. You're concerned about the their mental health, because your weird friend insists that they are dead. You with me? You're tracking with me. This is my, hi, my weird friend. He thinks he's dead. Now, you're concerned about them, so you pull them aside, and what you do is you go to the library, you get your best top three books ever written on medical science, whatever medical science is produced, and you present it to them. And you and your friend, you take the time, and you go through these books, and you read these books, these best books, and you point out to your friend that they uh, all come to the same conclusion, that dead men don't bleed. Correct, yes, correct, no problem. So after your friend reads it, you ask, have I, have I done my best to prove to you that medical science, that beyond a shadow of a doubt, states that dead men don't bleed? And you wait for that answer. And your friend looks at you and looks you straight in your eye, right? And they say, yes, yes, I see that. I agree, yes, I see that. And then you take your friend's hand and you cut it with the knife right away. And they begin to bleed and they're shocked and their eyes pop wide open. And your friends, they, you know, they're amazed. And, 
you ask them the question, do you see what this proves? And of course, in the stunning moment of shock, they respond with a resounding, yes, I see what it proves. And then you ask, so what does it prove? And the response from your friend is, medical science is wrong, dead men do bleed. The same data that we use to prove one thing will prove another depending on where you place the authority. There's a reason under the reasons. If you have already decided that you're not going to consider giving Jesus control of your life, that is the power of belief. Be it conscious or subconscious, it will affect all the decisions you make regarding faith from that point on. You will never admit the truth and always blame your interpretation of reality of, uh, on others or on something else. Why? And you'll be miserable. That's just the way it's going to be. It's, you're just going to shift it. You're never going to own it. Huxley, who was a novelist and philosopher, was part of a group called the Bloomsbury Set. And they felt this need actually to get rid of religion. This is a it wasn't really a, an official group that got together, but a bunch of philosophers and artists and other things. And they felt that religion wasn't rational in their discussions. As a matter of fact, in the early stages, they said that religion was too emotional. They said that science and reason will solve all of our social problems. Science and reason, when it comes in, it will make the world a better place to be. Uh, by the end of his life, Huxley was interesting. He was saying, let's forget Christianity because it's too rational. And he said that science and reason let the world down. And he said that science and reason made a mess of things. And the world now has gotten worse. And he got into, off into parapsychology and, uh, you know, parapsychology and other stuff. And uh, he said we needed mysticism and we needed, interesting enough, he goes back and says we needed emotion to get back in touch with who we are. The man suffered greatly with uh, throat cancer and eventually he actually died of an LSD overdose. The day he died was the day John Kennedy was assassinated. The day he died was also the day that C.S. Lewis passed away. Interesting. But he was living the metaphor that Jesus is giving us. Jesus says, hey, let me play a happy dance. And you say, no, I'm sad. So then Jesus begins to play a dirge. And you say, no, I'm happy. And ultimately, the problem is not the tune. The problem is that it's Jesus' tune. And it's not our, our tune. Are you with me? Do you, are you tracking with me this morning in Philosophy 101? You know, unbelief will utter, utterly contradict itself from generation to generation, from reason to emotion to reason to emotion. There's always a reason under the reason. Here, here's, here's a crazy, crazy thing. I'm going to step aside from my notes here. Sharon and I were guests at a conference this week in Quebec City beautifully put on by C2C, which is a church planting organization, under the Mennonite Brethren banner. Okay, I make fun of you Mennonites. Funny is, you know, some of you guys can laugh at yourself. The other part of it, some of you don't. You got no sense of humor and you get offended at any joke I, thank you. <laughs> any joke I make. But since you're pacifist, there's nothing you can do about it, so I keep going. <laughs> Bring it. If you study Minnow Simons, which most of you Mennonites don't, drop the mic, walk off the stage, you will notice that Minnow Simons was incredibly Pentecostal. 
Oh, finally, all right. So much so, in my opinion, this is strictly my opinion, my observation, the Mennonite culture swayed, swayed away from Menno's theology and embraced the culture much more. Ooh, he's walking on ice. So, here I am, Sharon and I. We're at a conference. Mennonites, but in, open to multi-denominational. Many different uh, expressions of faith, um, like the 50 other Mennonite groups. Uh, I think the odd Anglican, too, and a few Pentecostals. But here I am sitting with Sharon, and we're listening to this guy get up and begin to share. And he begins to talk, and he begins to talk about his story. And he's this hardcore Mennonite. And I lean over to Sharon, and I go, he's preaching Pentecostal doctrine. And I'm sitting back in my chair, waiting to see what happens. And he's talking about a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit, post-conversion, where the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We encounter God, and he talks about his story, and he's going on. And there was an infilling of the Holy Spirit. There was speaking in tongues. There's all this stuff going on. I'm going, I'm in a Mennonite conference. What's going on here? I start texting all my Mennonite friends. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Guy has an altar call, invites people up to the front. Why? To invite the Holy Spirit to come and make himself fresh in their lives. And I'm, I'm blown away. I, I'm a Pentecostal, charismatic. I'm sitting in my chair. I can't go to the front. I'm, I'm taking all this in. Forget this nonsense. It blew my mind. That over history... We've gone from emotionalism to reason to emotionalism to reason. And we see it developing even within our own tribes. Where we start going back to the roots. We start going back to what made us great again. And I witnessed something phenomenal last week. The guy sitting right across the row from me, who was a self-proclaimed hardcore Mennonite from Utah, took so much exception to what was going on in that auditorium that night that he jumped into our conversation, presuming that because we did not respond, that we were not in favor of what was taking place. And so, of course, when I turned around to him and I said, I think this is amazing, his eyes just went and began to blow his worldview out. And then the man I'm talking to is also another self-proclaimed Mennonite who affirmed everything that was just going on, to which my eyes went, and I'm seeing these denominational walls being ripped apart. And I see, and I love this from the, the, the conference. I really walked away with something beautiful where there was a prophetic word to the MB conference where somebody said, in order for your, your, your tribe to grow, the Mennonite banner needs to come down and the banner of Jesus needs to be lifted up. That was just amazing. And this is what Jesus is really talking about. It's going, what is the core essence of our beliefs? What are we holding on to? Let me get back to the text. Let's look at Christianity. Let me just say it this way. Christianity has within it both utter pessimism, 
What Jesus is saying is that Christianity has the dirge. But Christianity has utter optimism, which is the dance. And John the Baptist, he was that representation of the dirge. Uh, He had the hard words of the gospel of Jesus. He was the one who was what? Yelling, crazy, just crazy John the Baptist. Repent! Repent! You need a savior! You know, he was screaming out in the wilderness. It, It was a tough, it was a hard message. Then Jesus shows up, and what does Jesus do? He represents the dance. And we see that he came eating, and he came drinking, and talking of grace, talking about the good news of the bottle, bottle, of the gospel. (laughs) I quit. (laughs) Oh, good night. (laughs) Somebody sent me an article of the Assemblies of God and their their, uh, um, stance against uh, uh, alcohol and their stance on abstinence this morning, and I was reading it before I came up here. So Jesus even shows up on the scene, and he's accused of what? He's accused of being a, 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 glutton, a glutton and a drunk. So on, on the one hand, we have this utter pessimism of the gospel, the bad news. And here's the bad news of the gospel. We are wicked people. Why is it bad news? Because we don't want to hear that. We are sinners. We don't want to hear that. We need a savior. We need to trust somebody else's work for us. And when people hear that, they say, that's too hard. That's too negative. And those words like repentance and wicked and sinner, I don't believe in Jesus, Jerry, because that's just too hard. But then on the other hand, if I come to you and say, well, look, at if you just believe in Jesus, if, you know, the determining factor in your relationship is, is not your past, man, it's Jesus's past. He's done it for you. The determining factor in your relationship with the Father is not your record. It's Jesus's record, man. He's done it for you. You're completely accepted. You're, you know, it's all by grace. You know what people are going to say? That's too easy. The reason isn't the reason. Is it too hard or is it too easy? Because which one is it? When we tell people the bad news of the gospel, we're telling them that they are more sinful than they they want to believe. And when they hear that we are, uh, are, and when we hear we're troubled and because we don't like to lose control or power, you know, or that we have to go to somebody else to get saved, that's just not cool. Or getting saved by just accepting this thing called grace. No, that's just too easy. No, no. And so Christianity is so dirgy and dancy. It's the only religion that is wise. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And again, to unpack this would take us back into Proverbs and a whole bunch of other things. But we're not going there. On one hand, nothing is more pessimistic as Christianity. Read the Bible. We see that people are terrible. Terrible people. Awful. We do awful, horrible things. We're deep down inside. We're just bankrupt. People stink. Read the Bible. Sometimes it's just so pessimistic. It says that we're all terrible sinners, and no religion is as pessimistic on that end as Christianity. But the Bible is clear that the problem is the sin that's in our heart. And so other religions will say, if you just try hard enough, you'll find God. Just pray five times a day. Do this pilgrimage. You know, burn incense. Empty your mind. Eventually, you do enough, you'll find God. But Christianity is not that way. Because it also has this other component, which is the utter optimistic way that it's possible, when you think about it, that you and I can live forever. That you and I can run and not be weary. We can walk and not faint. And that you can have peace beyond all human understanding. And we all have a deep affinity, when you think about it, to be reunited to something bigger in the universe. 
This is what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at the last summon inside would be both glory and honor beyond our merits and also the healing of that old ache. So Christianity says, do you want to live forever? Do you want to feel totally loved? Do you want to be perfect? And it's, and it's possible. Because why? Because we're made that way. And it's far more optimistic than any of the other religions, but it also has this more pessimistic than any other philosophy. And Jesus is the one who keeps the balance. It's like the difference between noise and music. Wynton Marcellus said, noise is the same two sounds not related to each other. The difference between noise and music is very simple. Music is two sounds related to each other, while noise is the same two sounds not related to each other. How do you pull together the fact that we are wicked and that we deserve punishment? But also we're beautiful and we are valuable and we have dignity and worth as humankind. How do you keep those two together? Well, it's only on the cross. Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. Jesus is a person. He is not a formula for us to understand or a ritual to follow. He is a person for you and I to get to know. And Jesus says, if you only know me, you'll be able to handle the dirge and the dance of life together. The pessimism and the optimism, the horrible, the beauty of humankind, because on the cross, God's holiness and love was satisfied, and he has made those two things, not noise, but music. How's your thinking process at this point in time? Do you feel like this picture? Probably. So then, Jesus jumps into what is called the woe section. And he says, he began to denounce the cities to which most of his miracles had been performed. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the judgment day than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the skies? No, you're going to go down to Hades. You're going to hell, basically, is what he says. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom... Remember Sodom Old Testament times, right? It would have remained to this day, but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you, Capernaum. Those are hard words. He denounces these cities. He denounces cities that he does miracles in. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Today, you can go, you can actually visit the ruins of all these towns. They're all about a few miles within each other on the north northwest side of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. Jesus spent a lot of his time preaching there in these towns, other towns all along the way, doing a, most of his mighty works are done in these areas. So people are glad to, to see Jesus. They were glad to hear. He, you know, they're delighted that he healed so many of them. They were pleased when he fed them and they were hungry because you know, he multiplied food. But biblical scholars would often refer to the first year of Jesus' reign and ministry in this area of Gather, uh, Galilee as his highest point of popularity. So much so that people actually want to make this guy king. So he's doing stuff for the people. So why does Jesus now denounce them? And the biggest reason is because they wouldn't repent. 
So the most part, these three cities here typified all the places where his miracles were done. They didn't take any direct action against Jesus. They just took it all in. They simply ignored him, really. That's what happened. And while the Son of God preached, while he taught, while he performed unprecedented miracles in their midst, they, they just simply went on with their business. Oh, all right, okay. Seemingly unaffected. This is life as usual. That's all right. Oh, go to Jesus. He'll, yeah, he'll feed you. Yeah, yeah, he's doing lunch at 3 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, go, go do that. So Jesus is teaching us that unbelief is not just the lack of something, because we think that unbelief is the lack of faith, but unbelief is actually the presence of something else. And from the human perspective, the indifference appears to be foolish, but it doesn't appear to be terribly sinful. The indifference is this heinous form of unbelief. It is so completely disregards God that he is not even an issue with arguing about indifference. Well, whatever. He's not taken seriously enough even to criticize. So the, the cities Tyre and Sidon are mentioned there. They're Phoenician cities that were known for their arrogant hostility towards God and his people. And several of the prophets, Israel, prophesied against them. They were eventually conquered by Alexander the Great. And Jesus asserted if he had gone to Tyre and Sidon, if I would have gone just there to do those miracles, those two cities would have repented. But I was doing miracles with you guys, and you didn't get it. And so you wonder sometimes if we as people like this idea of religion, and it gives us, because it gives us what we want, or it makes us feel comfortable with our lives. So just do the religions, just go through the pace, just do what you need to do. But when it calls for repentance, which is what Jesus was doing, it's a whole different story. And at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. Nobody knows the Son except the Father. Nobody knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So what does he mean by these things? The passage doesn't say, but the reference must be to the words and the works of Jesus, this, this, the things that we would call divine revelation. They were hidden from the wise and the learned because the wise and the learned are the most often characterized by when we're wise and learned, we know it all, right? You know people like that? We know it all. We can stand behind our degrees. We know it all. And so we're characterized by our pride and our ability to know the answers and our refusal to admit that, you know, I don't need somebody else to help me. But yet little children, on the other hand, it's totally different. They're open. Little kids. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about real little kids. He was talking about people with the mindset of little children who were open and trusting. And, of course, he's moving in that direction. People who are open and trusting. He's just compared his generation to children playing in the marketplace, you know, wedding or funeral. And it was to the unpretentious, to the open, to the trusting people with genuine needs. That's where the truth is beginning to be revealed. And they grab onto that. People in their wisdom can't find God. We find God through revelation. People can't please God without faith. 
And so it was the Father's good pleasure to reveal to the Son to those who would be willing to receive him. So God is constantly speaking out there. God hides things from those who are wise in their own conceit and reveals them instead to those who will simply take him at his word. A sense of openness and surrender. That is the way that God works. The wise and the intelligent sarcastically refers to those who are intelligent beyond their own eyes, who rely on their own human wisdom, who disregard God's, uh, God. And, and, and the Lord doesn't exclude smart people from his kingdom, but rather those who trust in their smartness are actually the ones excluded. Because when you look at scripture, we see the Apostle Paul was a brilliant man, highly educated scholar. He didn't forsake his intelligence when he became a Christian, but he stopped relying on his intelligence to discern and understand spiritual and divine matters. It's not intelligence, uh, but intellectual pride that shuts people out of the kingdom. And that's our culture. Intelligence is actually a gift from God. But when it's perverted by pride, it becomes a barrier to God because trust is in the gift rather than in the giver. Then Jesus goes, he says, come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. One of the most profound examples of Jesus calling people to believe in him. This is an altar call. This is a call to salvation. The words in these verses record this call to faith. Come to me. The chapter began with John asking Jesus if he was the Messiah, to which Jesus responds basically, yes, I am. And then, it, and then included in Jesus' explanation of the problem of John with the rejection of the people going on. And because they refused to repent, he denounced them. He warns judgment. This judgment's going to come by because they refused to accept the revelation that Jesus was providing in his teachings and his miracles. And so at the end of the section now, after it's all there, he just repeats the offer. They don't need to be judged. They can find spiritual. Why ask how? Just come. Just come. And he's making this call. Come. And it's urgent. It's actually, it's a commanding call. It's like, come now, come. It's, it's not this nice, would you like to come? No, it's not a nice option. It's a call for attention. It's a call for action. The same word is, is used in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus says to some of his disciples, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It was like, come on, come on. So here Jesus is. He's looking to the culture. He's looking to people who have seen his miracles, those who, who believe, those who don't. And he just says, come. 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 And who does he call? He calls absolutely everybody. It's all inclusive. The call goes out to everyone. Jesus identifies those who belong to the all. You're weary? Come. You consider the two, two groups that he has here. It includes every human. It, it includes those who believe and those who don't. Those who come. You know, who are those? Uh, they're weary. They're burdened. It covers both sides of human misery. Those who have undertaken burdens themselves, they're weary. That's the active concept that's going on. And those who have had burdens laid upon them, the passive sense. When we look at Jesus' teachings, we see... That, that we may say that this burden included the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees because it was hard enough for, for people of Jesus' time just to try to keep the law. But the Pharisees had these other regulations that they put on top of the people. It just made it a complete burden. They were weary. They were burdened down. 
And so when we look at Jesus's call, he's calling everyone. He's calling all humanity. And it includes people who are aching and who are hurting, who are alone, who are under financial pressure, physical burden, emotional stress. If those experiencing sorrow and grief, oppression, repressed, depressed, disillusioned, troubled by guilt and sin, what's he saying? He's saying, come. You know, when I think about this, burdens and stuff, it reminds me of one of my kids when they were in, it was either junior high or senior high, I couldn't quite remember. But it, it, the stage of their morning ritual was kind of interesting. It was to fill their backpack, their, uh, their backpack with anything and everything they had for, for the day. And they would fit it to the point that this thing was crammed to the max, and then they would obviously try to carry it. And, you know, you're doing the math and you're going, that thing weighs just as much as the kid as he's walking into class. And like, why don't you just take like a pen and paper? Like, you know, that would be the nice way to go. But no, you got to take everything. Don't you have a locker? Yeah, but I keep it all with me. And there was no way that you could convince this child to take, you know, not to take it everywhere with him. Because why? He loved his burden. You know, some hide their pain and sorrow. Others run to everything and anything and anyone but Jesus. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, Jesus is calling you. If you're feeling depressed this morning, he is calling you. If you are hurt, if you're in pain, if you're troubled, if you're busy, 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 if you're self-contented, if you feel guilty, if you are working on your own strength, if you're lonely, stressed, look at this is Jesus' call and he's calling you. Jesus makes his appeal to people who have spiritual needs, not to the learned religious teachers who didn't think they had any spiritual needs. He just looked at everybody and said, come. Come to me. And he's got a promise. And the beauty of the promise is I'll give you rest. Who doesn't need that now, right? Rest for our souls. When our burdens actually become light. You know, Jesus does not invite those who have found their self-worth He doesn't invite the self-satisfied. He doesn't invite the self-righteous. He doesn't invite those living the life of ease with their legs stretched out and their feet pushing the soft sands on the beach. Here he says, look at all of you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden. Who's he inviting? He's inviting the tired. He's inviting the poor. He's inviting the tempt, those who are being thrown back and forth. He's inviting those who feel like they're just garbage. He's those huddled in masses yearning to be free. He's inviting those and he's saying, there is rest in faith. And so much of our fatigue, so much of our burdensome toil stems from this thing called pride, which you and I all have there. And if we're successful, our egos are inflated and we try for more, right? But when we falter, the rejection of others or, or the self-condemnation weighs us down in guilt and self-doubt. And it's much more freeing to take Christ's attitude of, just come to me and let's do this together. Let's serve other people. And Jesus says, I'll give you rest. And that's interesting because that, that, that's a promise that, which is both personal and individual. This is between you and him. You need his rest. What an exchange. Your burdens for rest. 
The Greek word there for rest is a verb. It means to refresh, to uh, reinvigorate, to revitalize. And what Jesus gives us is beyond what we can imagine. And he takes us and he pours his spirit into us and we are given living water. Refreshed. This is like when you're working hard on a hot summer day or whatever and you just need some water because you're, you're finding yourself slowing. You can't do it, so you get drink some water, and now you're refreshed and you can go back again to do the labor, to do the toil. That's what he's saying. It's interesting. Um, William Barclay says that there's a legend that Jesus, uh, when he was a carpenter, made the best ox yokes in all of Galilee. And that people, you know, from all over the country would come and buy the best yokes that skill could make. Of course, it's just simply a legend. We have no way to know that that's true. But yet Jesus says, my yoke fits well. My yoke, this thing. What he means is that the life I give you is not a burden to cause you pain because it's this thing, this yoke is to help you accomplish the tasks. It's measured to fit you. And so whatever God sends us is made to fit our needs and our abilities exactly. And although we're called to do work for him, we do it with him. And when you look at the concept and you study the concept of the yoke and how two animals come together and one's more mature and one's the learning one, he is the one who is the more mature and carries us through in the process. We need to trade religion for relationship. The human condition needs relationship. Jesus is unlike any other. Don't opt for one-size-fit-all religion or an off-the-rack religion or even your own self-designated religion. Go to our maker who knows you and me better than what we know ourselves. A relationship with Jesus is rich and rewarding. Nothing can compare to it. And all other things are just simply cheap imitations. And for those who are united with him, will make him sure you maintain balance. You don't shoulder your load on your own strength. We look to the Spirit to keep us close to Christ. We rest in his power to perform his work, and we walk daily with him. Earlier you heard Boulevard of Broken Dreams by Green Day. I walk a lonely road, the only one I have ever known. Don't know where it goes, but it's home to me. I walk alone. I walk this empty street on the boulevard of broken dreams where the city sleeps. I'm the only one. I walk alone. My shadow's the only one that walks beside me. My shadow's, my shallow heart's the only thing that's beating. Sometimes I wish somebody out there will find me. Till then, I walk alone. The fact is, we don't have to walk alone. The fact is, Jesus is saying, come. And we have a friend who sticks closer to us than a brother that he is gentle, he is humble, because that is his nature. He restores us by changing us, by making us like him. He is full of compassion, mercy, humility, and love. And, and you will find rest. You will find rest in him. And being, there's this well-known say, uh, saying that says, uh, association breeds assimilation. Being with Jesus then should make us more like him. But maybe it's better to say that regeneration breeds redemption. Jesus gives us a new heart, and thereby our souls are truly restored. And as a result of this, when we are restored, we have rest. Who wants rest? Because we have peace through with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we can stand before God acceptable through Jesus. Relationship with Jesus is the key to our restoration, and Jesus is calling us to that. Come, 
And this frees us from the weight of guilt and the heaviest weight of sin. And he stands in stark contrast to the religious ruler of his days, the Pharisees, the lawyers, who placed the burden of the law, the scriptures on people. They were proud, they were arrogant, yet Jesus is gentle and he's humble. And this reminds us of those who he calls, whoever you are, whatever your situation or condition, look who's calling you, that there's this invitation, not to the powerful, but it's to the weak, not to the arrogant, but to the humble, not to those who try to keep law, but to those who have come to see what the law was to teach, which was their sin. And he calls us and he offers rest, a rest that will empower us for the rest of our lives. And he doesn't call you by yourself. He says, I want to join you. Let's do this together. Let's pick up the pace. Let's do this together. And you'll find life truly fulfilling. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're sort of sick and tired of trying to earn everybody else's love. Maybe you've been trying to perform all different types of, of religious deeds. And you realize, like it's just, as Paul calls it, rubbish. You know, until, until you live your life in response to God's love. Really, it's just rubbish. Maybe you've been trying to please your spouse, your children, your parents, your employer, your employees, your religious authorities. Maybe you need to acknowledge that all those efforts are nothing but dung and and that God loves you simply because he created you. Maybe you have crippling sins from your past. You have a record. You have a, a track. Maybe you have done things that nobody knows about and it's eating you alive. And you think to yourself, how could God love me when he knows what I've done? Well, guess what? God knows that you are all messed up. He knows that you are screwed up, but he loves you before you did those things. Do you realize that? Many people step through the doors on a gathering like this and they say that, you know, God couldn't love me for all the things I've done. No, God loved you before you did those things. God loved you then, he loves you now, and he wants to take that burden of that dung, that rubbish, and throw it over the wall and rest in the truth of Jesus. And he walks alongside of you so that you're not walking alone. Maybe this is news for some of you, but one way of demonstrating that you're placing your faith in Christ is by praying to invite Jesus in your life. And prayer becomes that marked expression of belief. You believe, and this is now your response to belief. It's like X marks the spot. The moment your life when you begin to follow Jesus. And it gives a person an opportunity to do something, to, to express their new belief and the desire to following Jesus. And maybe today there's somebody here who's going, that is so me, man. I've been walking alone. That, that Green Day song, that's me, Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Well, he's saying, come and let's do this together. And one of the things we have to understand is that when we receive Christ, it means, it means turning to God from self and trusting in Jesus to come into our lives, to forgive us of our sins and to make us what he wants us to be and to just to agree intellectually that Jesus is the son of God and that he died on a cross for our sins is not enough. Nor is it enough to have an emotional experience. We receive Jesus by faith as an act of our free will. And you can do that right now if you need in a simple prayer. Talking with God because he knows your heart. Let's bow our heads. You don't have to worry about getting your words just right. But here's a, a suggested prayer. If this is you today, 
Just say, Lord, I want to know you personally. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and I receive you. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Now take control of my life. And make me the kind of person you want me to be. If you've honestly prayed that prayer. Luke says in verse, uh, chapter 15 that when one sinner accepts Christ as their savior, the angels rejoice. And so there's a party going on in heaven right now for somebody over your decision. And if that is you, you need to tell somebody. You can tell us anytime. Come talk to me. Email us. Phone us. Go to the welcome desk. Do what it needs. But tell somebody. In January, we start a, a class called Starting Point. It's a conversation about faith. You need to be in that. We want to encourage you to sign up when we get it up on the website to be involved. But for the rest of us, let's stand up. You've heard the presentation. And some of us, without question, by the numbers of people in this room, some of us are still, we're not there. Well then, are you going to do the dirge or are you going to do the dance? Are you going to be like that kid that you saw in the video? Or do you need just time to walk away from today and process and think about where your relationship is with Jesus? God, we acknowledge that we live in a God-bathed world. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that you have revealed yourself in the creative realm and you have revealed yourself in the simple concept of conscience. That you've revealed yourself in our cravings to live in a kingdom where your will is done absolutely everywhere. We want that. We desire that. And I acknowledge that joy, that laughter, food, provision, meaning, significance all comes from you and that that is not random. So God, I pray for those who want to be free from bondage of always trying to have to earn or gain approval or gain acceptance, but that I pray that they would be free to rest in the fact that you love us and you accept us in spite of all that we have done wrong. So help us to turn, help us to repent, help us to go into your way because that while we were still sinners, you loved us. And before you created the universe, you loved us before the foundations of the earth. You loved us before time is measured and existed. You loved us with an everlasting love. And God, that is totally overwhelming. My prayer that we as Soul Sanctuary will live the lives in response to that love. And I ask for those, maybe they're sitting, standing here, they feel that, that loss of fire, whatever that is. God, show them that you are that in you we are loved. That what we do in response to what you've already have done is so important. Speak to us. Challenge us. And God, may we be agents of your word to the people that you've placed in our lives. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for blessing those receiving the blessing did likewise. Soul sanctuary, go out into the world in peace. Have courage this week and hold on to what is good and return no evil for evil. Soul Sanctuary, encourage and support the weak. Help the suffering and honor everyone. 
may you all love and serve the Lord and rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now go and be the church. Amen.